everybody, it's Matt Weaver here with Bible Truth Project, and today we have a treat. We have Travis Snow, who is an author um, and somewhat of a Bible scholar, I guess, um, who is with us, is going to talk about his amazing books that he wrote. One of them is The Passover King, and the second one that just came out not that long ago is The 70 Weeks Jubilee, and I just finished digging through this one. So thank you so much, Travis, for agreeing to do this. We appreciate it so much. Yeah, thank you, Matthew. Appreciate you having me. Looking forward to the uh, conversation. So one of the things that kind of intrigued me about you is uh, this is, it's not that often per se that I find somebody who's kind of in my age bracket um, who who likes digging into this stuff. I mean, I'm, I know they're all over the place, but this was, I, I just was intrigued uh, that we're kind of in the same age bracket. So not that that has a whole lot of bearing on it, but that was a fascinating point for me. But I really have found out about you uh, through Joel Richardson. Um, I connected with him when we went to Saudi Arabia and um, he had recommended the Passover King, which I purchased and read through. And it was really a, a, a amazing, kind of an amazing angle that I hadn't considered much. Um, I've studied some eschatology, et cetera. At that point, I hadn't studied as much, but the last two years, um, in the pandemic, et cetera, has give, given a lot of people a lot of extra time. So yeah. I've studied a lot more um, in it. And it was very interesting, uh, the take that you brought out in that. So here at the beginning, I guess, let's, let's focus on this book first, and then we'll get into the 70 Weeks book. But what kind of was behind this one? What, what drove this? And tell us yeah. more about it. Sure. So the basic uh, premise of the book is that when Jesus comes back, the return of the Lord, the second coming, uh, it's going to be kind of a prophetic replay, if you will, of the original Passover story. And there's a lot we could unpack there in terms of specifics, but kind of the uh, old school conventional thinking on Passover is that it's already been fulfilled, you know, at the cross. Uh, Jesus was most likely crucified on the, the day of Passover in the first century when the Jewish priestly class was sacrificing their lambs. And there's this whole Jesus as the sacrificial lamb uh, idea that's very prevalent in Christianity today. It's been prevalent for thousands of years since the early church. But there's also this other side to Passover that is related to eschatology, as you mentioned, or the study of the end times, the return of Jesus. And when I started digging into this more and more in both the biblical text in the Hebrew Bible, you have a lot of Old Testament texts that a lot of people aren't even familiar with. You have a lot of Old Testament texts that present the victorious appearance of the Messiah, because back then, you know, they didn't always make a distinction between first and second coming. They were just presenting the Messiah appearing in glory, you know? Yep. You have all these texts that kind of present it as a, a rehashing of the Exodus story and the Passover story. So the Messiah is this warrior. He's like a new Moses deliverer. He's coming back to deliver Israel, even says he'll come out of Egypt. Uh, there's passages that refer to the Messiah pouring out plagues of wrath, uh, that directly parallel the 10 plagues from the book of Exodus. So uh, that idea, when I started kind of encountering it in different places, really just led me down this journey. 
of uh, research and all that. And you find that idea too in Jewish literature. It's very common and it was very common in Jesus's own day too. A big passage I talk about is Luke 22, where Jesus says he will eat the Passover with us again when it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. That's Luke 22, 15 to 16. So Jesus himself spoke of a future fulfillment of Passover, even beyond the cross. And it's just not a commonly held uh, or known about idea, um, but it's there. And it's there in the book of Revelation as well. And, and I think at a practical level, I find that understanding the return of the Lord through the lens of Passover just helps so many different pieces of the eschatology puzzle fit together. And that was another thing that drew me to it was just kind of seeing how it explains so many things from uh, the return of Jesus itself, kind of God's plan for Israel, what's going to be happening there, uh, other kind of end time events related to the Antichrist. So I was kind of just trying to use that um, idea in scripture to explore eschatology throughout, throughout the book. Yeah. That's one of the, one of the threads I want to say that probably the first time I really had heard of that concept was actually, I had got a pre published, um, couple chapters of, of Joe Richardson's, uh, Zion to Sinai or Sinai design, however it is, oh, Zion, yeah. Sinai design. <laughs> um, and in there he mentions, that whole exodus re like uh the redone exodus i guess you would say and um i'm guessing he probably uh was inspired somewhat in, in the content of your book and and i don't know the history so i'm not gonna suppose but but mm -hmm. i i learned about that thread and it was it was very intriguing to me because i hadn't really thought of it that way you know the stuff that i had heard about uh, or was familiar with was the idea that the last days is going to be like um tabernacles um Sukkot kind of fulfill that whole, you know, Yom Tzorah all the way through that, that kind of um, reasoning. But then you actually made a tremendously compelling case that no, he is a, it is a Passover based model. And that was something that was different than what I uh, understood. And I think it's helpful, you know, eschatology for a lot of people is um, maybe a little confusing. And so they don't want to uh, approach it because there's a lot of opinions involved, but I've kind of found over the last few years as I've kind of dug into it um, that there are these common threads that most people agree on some base um, points or, or premises. And then there's some adjustments with timing and things like that. And obviously, you know, your position is, is definitely futurist, literal, um, not allegorical per se return of Jesus to come and set up a kingdom um, so I would assume you are um, uh, premillennial. Mm -hmm. uh, totally, I don't. Yeah. I don't know about uh, pre-tribulational or pre-trib, but um, no, personally, no. I'm not. But I don't know where you, you stand. I mean, I, I know where you stand, but you know, I can't say that yeah. to the camera. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, but generally, I think we agree on that 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 side of things. But. But in general, there's just that shift. So that's one of those things like for me is, okay, so in my mind, I kind of had this tabernacles view of it and it does fit to a degree, but then the Passover view really does actually fit very, very nicely. And the language you talked about, the coming out of Egypt, um, coming to Sinai from Sinai, coming up north, like it's, it's really in the footsteps of the original Exodus is kind of what the biblical narrative is kind of alluding to, mm -hmm. uh, especially from the Sinai north part. 
And um, you highlight that, which I think is, is really useful. And I think everyone really should, um, if they're interested in that sort of material, you're going to get a lot of the book. Uh, one of the one of the questions, excuse me, is just in your view, um, and I know you addressed this. I mean, these are these are thick books. There's a lot of a lot of pages. I know on Twitter you were lamenting over your page counts, but <laughs> but I'm a, in I'm a uh, for punishment. <laughs> but in the uh, just the timing, kind of hot. I mean, maybe that's too much to ask. But what what about just the rundown of kind of the timing events that you see in the final seven year sequence uh, based upon what you see and what you studied in this book? You, yeah, so that's a lot. Uh, I was going to also say, just to follow up with your comment about Joel Richardson, I think we were actually, actually, I know we were actually writing our books at the same time, completely unaware of each other. Oh, really? Yeah. Nice. And um so Joel is one of the only other people who's like bringing to the forefront this Exodus idea. And then we started talking through email and then I kind of put it on his radar and then he was doing Sinai to Zion. So we were pretty much doing it at the same time, which is really cool. And there were certain things that he had certain pieces of the puzzle that I really hadn't thought about um, and hadn't really seen. And so he like put other things on my radar, even as I was writing the book, which was really cool. So I do think it's something that the Lord is is bringing to the the forefront, like you said, of just moving away from the the fall feast idea of that the return of Jesus is only connected to feast of trumpets and day of atonement and tabernacles. And uh, what I emphasize, I think all of the biblical feasts, I think they kind of will go sequentially. I think they will all be fulfilled in some way in the future. Now. In terms of your question about seven years, are you talking about like the start of the 70th week or are you talk like the tribulation, quote unquote, or more like when Jesus actually comes back, like the sequencing or all of the above? Well, maybe we should rephrase it. So maybe instead of the just from the because I know the 70 weeks, you get into that part a little bit more and we'll probably touch base in that a little bit later. But from the Passover King perspective, just walk us briefly through kind of the steps that you that you saw in scripture of 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 his arrival etc from the context of of that oh, book the passover king yeah so i think first of all the big question is where does jesus actually come back to so when he descends from heaven and let's just leave the rapture out of it for the time being i have some chapters on the rapture at the end of the book that incorporate the rapture more but uh, for now, I'll kind of leave that on the back burner. So Jesus is coming out of the clouds. He's coming in glory and he has gathered his saints. And the question is, well, where does he go? And for a while, or I think if you were to ask a lot of people, even pre-millennial type people, they might say he kind of descends to Jerusalem right away. Uh, the whole Zechariah 14, I think it's 14. His feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. So you have this idea that the Messiah will be in Jerusalem, and I don't doubt that, but there are other texts that seem to indicate that he's going to actually go down into the Middle East first. And um, I think a strong case can be made that when Jesus comes back, very early on, he will go down into Egypt uh, because of the events of the Great Tribulation and 
the time of Jacob's trouble, which will scatter Israel or a lot of Israel out of their land. So the Jews will be scattered in exile again, in uh, slavery and bondage to the Antichrist to some degree. And then Jesus is going to actually go and set them free. And there are so many passages that talk about the Messiah coming back to deliver Israel from slavery and to actually bring them back to the land. So I think, as you mentioned, it's kind of a natural sequence where he goes into Egypt and he goes across uh, the Middle East, you know, down through what would we call it, the Sinai Peninsula into where I think I agree with you, Mount Sinai. It's probably in Saudi Arabia. So I think he's going from Egypt over across to Mount Sinai and then marching north from Mount Sinai up into uh, the land of Israel and bringing all of uh, these captive uh, Jews who will he'll be regathering with him uh, up to the land and up into Jerusalem. And then it seems like at some point around that time, you're talking like after he's come back, like the late, late stages of that final seven-year period as you're transitioning, it seems like he will encounter the Antichrist in the land of Israel and that there will be this final great battle that takes place. Um, a lot of people know that as the battle of Armageddon, quote unquote, and John in the book of Revelation uses a lot of Passover symbolism in uh, Revelation 15 and 16 when he's talking about the battle of Armageddon and these final plague judgments. So I think that's kind of the sequence that Jesus is this Passover warrior king and he's marching through the Middle East. You have passages like Isaiah is it 61 or 63, I forget, talks about the Messiah coming out of Edom which would have been Saudi Arabia and Jordan. So that's kind of like, again, him coming from the south, uh, just talks about him marching north. And so I think that whole motif of this exodus out of Egypt, up through Saudi Arabia, Jordan, into the land of Israel, where he will finally encounter the Antichrist, that's kind of the way I view it going down before he sets up the kingdom. Yep. I think... Um... Just, just a question, I guess. Like, and and I don't, you don't really get into this a whole lot per se. But it's just a question. Do you, um, you're you tend to uh, connect Gog Magog as, as with the final conflict as well? That's correct. Like that's yes. kind of synonymous with Armageddon. Yes, I have uh, in that Passover book. I think it's four chapters on Gog Magog. So I I view Gog Magog in Ezekiel thirty eight to thirty nine as one of these central end times or eschatological Passover texts. And I, I try to really lay out in the book how Ezekiel is using this Passover language uh, that he's actually drawing from the Torah and different passages, especially Numbers 24 and Deuteronomy 32. Yeah. So I really try to highlight how Ezekiel is presenting the Gog of Magog war as this final culmination point where the Antichrist is defeated. Um, yeah, so I believe Gog is the Antichrist who's defeated before the Messianic kingdom, right? When Jesus uh, comes back. Totally, yeah. Awesome. So the role of Messiah, I guess one of the questions, and I think you're probably in the same page as uh, with me on this side of it, 
And that is the Jewish nature and identity of the Messiah and Jesus. It's something that I think in the Christian world, unfortunately, we kind of, we, I think it's, it's, it's changing some people are understanding more of the Jewish roots of the faith per se. Um, but as far as in general, a lot of people have kind of forgotten what it actually means to be a Messiah, that that is a, that was a Jewish con concept. Well, I shouldn't say Jewish. It was God's concept, but it was a Jewish concept, Jewish identity. There's a lot connected to that. Um, do you look at this like, like in the, in the picture of, of, of this book, and I'm going to bring it up probably in the latter book as well, but just where does the church fit into to this whole situation? Because I tend to see a lot of the um, Old Testament texts, etc. Um, it really focuses around Israel. You know, God is focused around Israel. The, the, the things that God's going to bring fulfillment is surrounding Israel and with Israel and through Israel, etc. Um, so, where does the Gentile, the Goyim, um, where do they fit into this picture in your mind? Yeah, generally, I think that's the interesting thing is how much focus is on Israel. And then if you have all these passages in the Old Testament, you would have to put Israel at the center. But then as you get into the New Testament, I think to some degree, although I don't believe the church replaces Israel, they are kind of incorporated into the story, kind of grafted into the covenant, uh, into the new covenant. And Paul talks about being kind of part of the commonwealth of Israel. So I definitely think we have a major role to play. The church has a major role to play. And a lot of what Israel experiences, especially in the end, in terms of persecution and anti-Semitism, I think that will kind of go both ways in terms of the church standing in solidarity with Israel will be brought into Israel's experience to a very large degree. And that's also a big part of my uh, ministry is just helping the church understand God's plan for Israel and how everything will unfold so we can be prepared whenever these things happen, you know, whatever the timing is. Uh, so I definitely think we're brought into it and um, to a very, in a very major way, but not to the degree that like we're, everything that applies to Israel applies to us. I still keep some distinction there. Yep. And I think that's a distinction that is, you see even throughout the New Testament. Yeah. Yeah, I, I would agree with that as well. I, I would have, you know, before my exposure and it, look, I'm not, uh, I don't have the years of, of schooling um, from the academic standpoint for it, but just my practical trips to Israel, time that I've spent around the material, et cetera. I just, my eyes opened so much to the, um, I guess, how would you say it? The, the, the Middle East centric, Jewish centric, Israel centric nature of scripture. And not only that, but of the faith, you know, if you, if you're the, the, there wasn't really a term or a word for uh, Abrahamic faith. Uh, even up through the second temple, it didn't really exist. They weren't necessarily known. It, did, it wasn't known as Judaism. The practice wasn't known as Judaism until later. Um, it was just basically Israelite or Hebrew faith. That's kind of all it was. And I think it's interesting that it's in that context of faith that we enter this kind of messianic time frame or in the second temple period, where you have a lot of messianic movements. And you know, Yeshua, Jesus's movement was 
another one of these. And, and that conversation by the Sanhedrin, you know, Gamliel stands up and talks about the, look, this is another movement. If this is from God, there's nothing we can do about it. It's not going to change anything. But if it's not from God, uh, this thing's going to fall apart like all the others did. And I, I think it's pretty interesting that a sage like Gamliel, who's the grandson of Hillel, makes a statement like that, that if this is of God, it's not going to fall apart. And of course, we know history and everything connected to it. But that is really the divergence. That is um, the start of this movement. And of course, then hundred and odd, some odd years later, then you have the formalization of Judaism, et cetera, um, outside of the temple context. But, but still, you know, as Christians, we, we have to understand that God's heart is for his people. Um, Jesus, you know, obviously is the creator of the universe, but he, he became part of the Israelite nation, um, specifically Judah, and put on the flesh of Judah and became part of that. And he's planning on retaining that. That's, mm-hmm. That doesn't go away in the prophetic understanding of scripture. Anyway, so Passover King, of course, is the title of that one. I highly recommend everyone to, everyone to get this book. Uh, it really is an eye-opener. It has a lot of tremendous material in it, and, and it's exceptional. Is there anything else you want to add on with this book before we get into your latest one? Uh, well, I just really like what you said about Jesus retaining his Jewish identity. It's, uh, I, yeah, it's something that I think is highlighted in the book to a large degree, but I think a lot of people are, they're kind of used to seeing Jesus as a Jew, as like some New Testament background, like the history, you know, like Jesus was a Jew and he was born in Bethlehem and we have Christmas and all that but they don't make the connection that he still has Jewish flesh. He still identifies first and foremost with his people, with his culture, with his land. And that's never going to change. So when he comes back, the nature of everything he does is going to be so deeply embedded within that Jewish framework. And I think that even ties in right to the whole Passover thing of, you know, from a Jewish point of view, from an old Testament point of view, Passover is like the main celebration. It's the main pivot point in the Old Testament story, or it's one of the main pivot points. So it's so deeply ingrained into the consciousness of Jews and within Judaism. And so the idea that the Messiah is coming back to fulfill Passover, like this is just a very Jewish idea. And in my book, I actually talk about some of the Jewish sources, even modern rabbinic sources where you still see this idea. It's, it's like very well accepted and commonly accepted among religious Jews today that the Messiah is coming back as this kind of Passover type Exodus, new Moses, because that's just, who, that's just, who, that's just who he is. It's, but it's not so much understood in a, in a, a lot of Christian context, but yeah. Um, so that's probably my concluding thoughts on that book. And then you went for the probably most difficult subject you could have grasped, which was Daniel 9, um, 24 through 27, the 70 weeks thing, and decided to write a book about it. And that's what this is all about. Yep. Which is quite intriguing. I just got to Yeah. I was getting into it. Daniel 9. Sorry. I was getting into Daniel 9 when I wrote the first one. And I was like, man, I, I have so much material on this. I was like, I could just 
do a, another book on this. And yeah, it ended up being a pretty exhausting, extensive project, but I, I wanted to get it done. So yeah, there it is. <laughs> 350 pages, if I recall. No, not quite. Ah, oh, you're short. No, 354, you're just over. Yeah. Look at that. <laughs> no, so let's talk a little bit about this. So Daniel 9 is a section of, uh, maybe I should just pull it up real quick and read it. That'll be beneficial to everyone listening here. Um, this is the 70 weeks uh, prophecy. Do you have a preferred um, translation? Uh, I think the NASB does pretty decent. On that one does pretty decent. I don't know if I have the, an NASB. I think the I, ESV. I got the yeah, ESV. I'll do that. No, um, no the ES, I was going to say the ESV really messes it up. <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's the one you don't want to do. I think I can get it. Is it, what about the net? Uh, I don't know. Yes, yeah, there's some real pu like punctuation translation issues, which I actually get into in chapter eight. And that's why some of these translations are so bad. Um, but yeah, I wish the NI, do you have the NIV? I don't, I think that one's not I do, I think bad. my other software, my Bible software just decided to crash. <laughs> Let me use my phone. That's faster. Yeah. Sorry. I have it on my phone too. I, I could... NASB. There's too many Bibles. I mean, you never have too many Bibles. You want the 95 or the 2020? Let's see what the new one says. Daniel is one of the most interesting prophets, um, at least for me, too. I just spent a lot of time the last two years studying Daniel. So it was a, um, it's really eye opening when we actually get around. A lot of that was also Joel Richardson, Dalton Thomas series as I was following kind of through that. And I mean, I, we studied it independently from that as well, but just hearing their take on it was also beneficial. All right, here it is 70 weeks have been decreed for your people and, for, and your holy city to finish the wrongdoing, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for guilt, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. So you are to know and understand that from the issuing of a decree to restore and build, rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be built again with streets and moat, even in times of distress. Then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. And its end will come with a flood. Even to the end, there will be war. Desolations are determined. And he will confirm a covenant with the many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. And on the wing of abominations will come the one who makes desolate until a complete destruction. One that is decreed gushes forth on the one who makes desolate. Simple. <laughs> Very simple. <laughs> oh. 
Yeah. So what, um, and, and, and we could go, I don't know how many different directions on it, but you like, why, why pick this, this to then pick, read a book. I mean, I mean, it's an amazing section of scripture because it contains a lot of information that in some ways isn't really anywhere else in scripture, uh, especially to do with timings um, and some of the things that the Messiah, the Prince, I mean, the references there, it's pretty rare to find kind of a loaded scripture like this. Um, but yeah, I guess take us through some of your thoughts on it. Yeah, it is totally loaded. And I think one of the benefits of it I think that is one of the benefits of it is that it's totally loaded. And so if you can, you can get it right, it just unlocks a lot of things because you're talking about the debate between even, is it messianic or not? So Orthodox Jews don't think it today. Orthodox Jews don't think it's messianic, whereas yeah. I would argue that it is. Then you have the whole debate between preterists who think it was fulfilled either during the time of the Maccabees or in the first century in 70 AD uh, versus futurists like you and me who say it still has a future fulfillment, especially the last seven years. And then you have the whole issue of Israel uh, in the prophecy. Does this refer to uh, some kind of future for Israel during the end times and in the kingdom? Or was God kind of done with that in the past? So you have all these, like you say, kind of loaded issues and that's why I think it's so beneficial, because once you work through all of that, you get a lot deeper insight and understanding into the Messiah and what it says about him and when he would come and what he would do. You get insight into things about the future. And there's just so much there that I felt like there hasn't really been a book that fully unpacks it in the way that I think it should be unpacked. Uh, there's been a lot of commentaries and there's been some shorter books, but I think they, I don't think anyone's really done it justice in a long time, at least, or, or fully explored it, especially in relationship to the Jubilee. Uh, that's why I called the book, the 70 weeks Jubilee. So I just felt like there was so much there on Daniel nine that needed to be said and, and fully worked through so that people would have a, a comprehensive resource. And yeah, I was kind of drawn to it for that reason, because of it just, it's so power packed with so much important information that it just gives you kind of a foundation and a framework for not, I'm not going to say everything, but so many core vital issues that I think need to be on our radar. Just in a basic um, context, basically, uh, you would probably hold to, or you hold to basically the, the kind of, in a way, the, the, I shouldn't say traditional because I'm not sure if it is traditional. The, <laughs> the, the 400 and um, 490, is that correct? Uh, no. It's for 490 years total. Yeah, 400, yeah, 490 years total based on the 40 or 49 if you're talking about an actual Jubilee, but 490 mm. is the large form Jubilee. Yes. Um, and that is basically some of the time that we have in the um, 62. I'm not trying to read it and think at the same time. Sorry. But that, that's coming from the, the 62. Is that correct? Well, or in terms of, weeks. 
Yeah, so you have the 70 weeks, which is Shavuim Shavim yep. in Hebrew, which corresponds to the... Uh, Shavuot is seven. Yeah, the seven, but the cycles of the Jubilee. So the 70, the 70 weeks is like 10 Jubilee cycles. So it's basically 70 times seven or 10 times 49. And that's how a lot of early Jewish commentators were reading it as a, as a period of Jubilees that's leading up to the messianic age because who's going to ultimately fulfill the jubilee well the messiah so but then what happens in the prophecy is almost all of those pass by 483 years is the first 69 weeks which is the um seven and 62 of verse 25 and then you have seven years or one kind of seven year cycle that hasn't come to pass yet because the other the other period got cut off um, right before the Messiah was crucified. So there's a lot of interesting stuff going on there. And in the book, I lay out all different charts of just how different people interpret the timeline. And uh, that's another thing I wanted to do for people was just kind of say, here's how this group interprets it in visual form, like. Here's their chart of where the years are and the seven and the 62. And um, yeah, so I get into all that, but it's definitely kind of riffing off of this idea of Jubilee cycles because of the prophetic significance of that. And a Jubilee basically in the Old Testament was the 49th or the 50th year um, mm -hmm. where it was the, you have the concept of the Shemitah, but it, it's the ultimate Shemitah of a generation where things go back to original tribal um, territories, et cetera, for people's inheritances, et cetera. Slaves are set free, debts are canceled. And you get into some of that as well of the fulfillment of the Messiah um, in coming, first of all, the righteousness aspect, et cetera, but then also looking forward to when he comes back. It's interesting that one of the first things that happens um, in prophecy is that he actually gives people their inheritances. Like there's, again, that, that idea of, okay, we're putting people back into the land, back into their inheritances, kind of following the same pattern. So I, I again, um, you know, it was, it was very helpful to see those connections as well. Of course, I've been familiar with, I've been familiar with the passage, et cetera, but it is tricky. I've heard different things. Um, one of the things, and, and i I, I just one of the things I've, I've heard from different people is the idea that the 70 weeks is actually was literally 70 week ministry of the Messiah. Have you ever heard of that concept before? Yeah, the, that's the first century preterist view. They'll say the 70th week was from 27 to 34 AD. That's kind of a general uh, timeline that they'll use a lot of them. So they'll say the Messiah started his ministry in 27 AD, which I think is highly possible. Um, and then, you know, they'll end. So then they'll add their seven years to that and they'll try to place everything related to the 70th week in that time period from 27 to 34 AD. The problem is it just doesn't work when you actually start looking at the passage and you start looking at the, the, the dates that they're using and everything that has to fit there, you just can't get everything to fit from 27 to 34 AD. So then what they have to do is they have to add on extra time after 34 AD to get to 70 AD. 
because that's where they're putting the abomination of desolation. So they're just like conveniently saying, oh yeah, the 70th week is from 27 to 34. It's all right there. And oh, by the way, we're just going to add on this extra 36 years so we can get our abomination of desolation in the time of the Romans and all that. But that just doesn't work for so many reasons. I mean, uh, uh, you look at what happened in the first century, you look at what Jesus says will happen when the abomination of desolation takes place. I go, I have two chapters just on that. I mean, it just doesn't, to put the fulfillment of the 70th week in the first century, it just doesn't fit. Not to mention again, that the Jubilee is an end times motif. It's about the future coming of the kingdom. It's about what the Messiah will do when he comes back, how he will fulfill the Jubilee like you said, by bringing the tribes of Israel back to their inheritance, setting them free, which was what the Jubilee was about in a historical way or at a historical level. So then as scripture moves along, the Jubilee becomes this prophetic symbol, just like Passover. You know, the, the prophets are always drawing on these major historical institutions to give us a window into what happens when the Messiah sets up his kingdom. And so yeah, to say that the Jubilee was fulfilled in the first century when the temple was destroyed and the Jews were largely, you know, exiled and sent into slavery, it's like, it's the exact opposite of what the Jubilee stands for. So there's no way that a Jubilee prophecy can be completely fulfilled in the first century. Um, although I definitely think the prophecy does relate to the coming of the Messiah, his crucifixion, that doesn't mean it ends there. That just means it's part of it is kind of the case I'm making in the book. But yeah, that, that's a common view. It's a very well entrenched view going back to the church fathers that Daniel nine was fulfilled in the first century, but yeah, it's not true. <laughs> it's just not true. Who is the people of the Prince in your view? Uh, yeah, this is a good question. In my view, the people of the prince are the people who will invade Jerusalem with the Antichrist in the future. So I talk, I have a whole chapter on that too, where I talk about the people of the prince to come and the identity of the prince to come. And there's been a common view that the people of the prince to come were like the Romans, or even that it's revealing like the ethnicity or nationality of the Antichrist. That really goes back to Hal Lindsey, you know, from the 1970s. Late great planet Earth. Yeah, he really popularized that view that Daniel 9.26 reveals the ethnicity and nation nationality of the Antichrist. But I think a stronger case based on the Hebrew wording and the that phrase, I think a stronger case can be that it's just referring to when the Antichrist invades in the future. I don't, I don't even think that verse is about 70 AD at all which puts me in a minority of commentators, but I, I mean, people can read the book. I go through it. If you look at the language used there, it's all end times language that even it corresponds back to Daniel chapter eight. So I think the people of the prince are just, that's the antichrist invading Jerusalem in the future. Um, yeah. I think it's a general statement. The, uh, and then we come just keeping going down um the whole firm covenant for a week how what do you see that how do you see that playing out i think that's referring to the prince to come who would be 
the little horn from Daniel chapter eight, who would be AKA the antichrist. I think that's referring to him making some kind of geopolitical covenant or treaty. And really there's a lot of background. I get into the book on this topic of how the Torah prohibited Israel from making covenants with the surrounding Gentile nations. Mm -hmm. And there's this passage, oh, is it Isaiah 28, which talks about Israel making a covenant of death with the nations. And I think it's Daniel 9, 27, the covenant is playing off of this idea that Israel will receive the Antichrist and make some kind of covenant with him for political gain, for peace, whatever. And then that will initiate the final seven years of the 70th week. And then halfway through that, he will go, go back on his word and he'll stop the sacrifices, which seems to me to indicate that the covenant could include some type of stipulation about sacrifices, maybe Jewish access to the temple mount. It's hard to say exactly, but at some point he breaks that covenant and then he invades the city, uh, which is what you see. I think it's actually, that's exactly what you see in verse 26. And then other places like Zechariah 14, Ezekiel 38, kind of this final invasion of, of Israel before the messianic age. I think that's all tying in, but what's cool about Daniel nine twenty-seven is actually telling us how this final seven year period starts, which is the major value of the passage and of course the center point of verse 27 is the abomination reference which that you read about in chapter 11 as well as then jesus references it in the olivet discourse which to me is the strongest evidence that the book of daniel in the mind of jesus was not a fulfilled thing um and i know i i'm uh and I know in the traditional view, uh, they struggle with like Daniel 11. They struggle with the, the details because it kind of seems to fit what was going on between the Seleucids and the Ptolemies. But, but I always looked at that and I'm just like, mm, maybe it was kind of representative, but I don't know. For, me, for myself, I look at that as still all future. Maybe I'm weird, but I just somehow when Jesus, he could have chosen a lot of scriptures. And he probably did in a lot of conversations we don't read about, but he could have he could have chosen a lot of scriptures, but he he kind of centered, and this is a point Joel has brought out, uh, and a point uh, Dalton has brought out, and there's a lot of others that have brought this out, and I think it is actually probably one of the most important aspects to understanding the last day sequence, is the abomination, uh, and how mm -hmm. that is a anchor to understanding the time. Um, that there's a lot of maybe different interpretations, things like that, and surrounding it from different viewpoints throughout generations. But the one thing that you cannot really argue with from any of the views is that if there's a temple standing, somebody goes up there, messes with the sacrifices, calls himself God, that's kind of clear. So, mm -hmm. and then you have the Thessalonians reference to kind of that very thing at least in the mind of paul and paul wasn't at the olivet discourse he didn't necessarily hear that from jesus himself but obviously the conversation in his in his day his understanding uh having gone back and forth with the apostles 
was that very thing that there's somebody going to go into the temple, sit down and be God. And that there's this great, um, this great rebellion or, um, I guess he uses the word rebellion there that takes place. And that's an important thing to understand. And I think Jesus, you know, makes that very clear in, in all of the, what can be interpreted many different ways of the Olivet Discourse. That's one anchor that's, I think is extremely solid. That is very helpful, I believe. Um, just in your opinion in Daniel 11, it's kind of off subject, but while we're on the subject anyway, Daniel 8, 11, do you see all of that as future? Or do you see just the last part of it of the little horn? I'm just curious. So as of now, as I sit here in my living room, <laughs> uh, I will say this. I, it's hard for me to not see Daniel 8 as future. So I see Daniel 8 as future, as of, yeah. Daniel 11, to me, is actually the most complicated portion of the book of Daniel, um, which is ironic because a lot of people would say it's Daniel 9, like the 70 weeks. I actually think compared to the 70 weeks, I think Daniel 11 is way more complicated in terms of where you're starting your history and where you're starting your eschatology. What parts of that are past and what are future? That's a very, very difficult question because Daniel 11 starts out historically in some way, it seems talking about Alexander the Great. Yeah. Uh, but it, then you could make the case, like I hear what you're saying, that a lot of that could be future, which kind of is connected to Daniel 8, uh, you know, in terms of the Daniel 8 war could be future between Turkey and Yavan, or I'm sorry, but Turkey is Yavan between Turkey and Persia, Iran. And then you could argue that Daniel 11 is telling you kind of some of the things that happen after the war of Daniel 8, you know, and I think in some way, that's definitely true. That's definitely my position. So, but I feel a lot more, I feel a lot more confident about Daniel 8 in terms of what I believe and why. Uh, whereas Daniel 11, in terms of when the eschatology part starts is more complicated for me. And part of the reason for that is because to really get to the bottom of that, I mean, you would have to go and either spend a very long time studying the history of Alexander the Great and the breakup of his empire. And I've read a few books on this, but not enough to be like an authority to where I could say like every Seleucid king and this is exactly what happened. And even there are some commentators who say, yeah, the history doesn't exactly fit from Daniel 11, doesn't exactly fit everything, but I'm not an expert in that history to that level. So I think you'd have to really dig into a lot of sources and really kind of map out what happened after Alexander the Great. And that would probably reveal a lot about Daniel 11. So it's a big open question, but uh, yeah, Daniel 8, it's a little more straightforward to me. It's hard, like, I don't know. I read Daniel 8 and I, I read the history of what happened after Alexander the Great died. And I read the language in Daniel 8 and I'm just like, uh, this doesn't seem to fit. And one of the principles of interpretation I use is that 
if you're going to say something was fulfilled historically, you have to be able to show that all of the details were fulfilled historically. Because as you mentioned, there are patterns, you know, there are historical patterns. And that's why people get tripped up on Daniel 9 in relation to 70 AD in the first century, because there are similarities between what happened in the first century and what Daniel 9 says, but it doesn't mean that all the details of Daniel 9 were fulfilled in the first century. So it's kind of more like a pattern than a true fulfillment. And I see the same thing with Daniel 8. There are definitely patterns in Daniel 8 with Alexander the Great and his empire falling and how Alexander the Great fought the Persians. But when I look at the details, I just don't, it's, I just don't see it being fulfilled back then. So it's, it's a little bit, I think something that we could use in today's language that people would understand is World War One and World War Two. Mm-hmm. You know, if from a historical context, if that happened in the first century or 600 year BC, whatever, um, there you have in a space of several decades, a conflict that was in a lot of ways, very similar, mm-hmm. you know, similar players, you know, similar locations, but different conflicts. And I think that kind of analogy could play true to where, you know, there's been these um, shadows, shadow pictures that have existed that you could say, well, that could be it, but, but there's an ultimate fulfillment that will make sense when the time comes. And of course you can't predict that. You just have to wait and see what happens. So. Yeah, it's, complicated and it comes back for me for to the details because I, I don't think god is trying to confuse us and so if you look at something and you say well the details here just don't match history i think we're on pretty solid ground to say this is about the future um that's how i approach those things but i feel like there could be a lot more work done even by scholars and historians on Daniel 8 and 11. Um, I'm in the process now of hopefully applying for PhD programs. I have to get through the GRE first and I haven't had a math class since I was like uh, 18. I'm 35 now, but I've been going back and forth on this of what to focus on in my PhD. And I've thought a lot about Daniel 8 and 11, but I don't know if that's going to be my focus or emphasis but it's, yeah, it's definitely something that someone, I hope someone will do it eventually and like really dig into the scholarship there and the history and like the original source material from the Persians and all that. And afterwards, the Greeks, because they're still, that's like an uncharted territory still in my mind. Totally. Yeah. I mean, it totally is. Yeah. 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 I mean, I have one of the things I did, this is something I learned from not, not uh, it's someone indirectly, but um, there's an individual and I think I have a map here. Let me see if I do. The best biblical maps in the world created by two individuals who lived in Israel uh, for many years, Jim Munson and Stephen Lancaster. You can see the mm-hmm. references there, biblical backgrounds. Um, mm-hmm. They actually live in Ohio, believe it or not. So they lived in <laughs> Jerusalem for 30 years. And uh, I was lucky enough to go to a seminar where Steve Lancaster 
um, gave gave a discussion, and uh, those two men literally have walked every hill in Israel, taking this is back before the days of satellite, whatever they used to walk every hill and take altimeter measurements, and and they f- physically drew out these maps, which are amazing. But anyway. Um, but one of the things that they taught, Stephen Lancaster taught, is in something that they taught, and uh, uh, Stephen Lancaster was a, or Jim, both of them were professors at JUC for a long time, Jerusalem University College. And, um, but one of the things they always did is draw things out. Like when you see motions or movements or things and just put it on geography so it makes more sense. And I actually did that. I'm not going to get into that in this, this discussion, but I actually did that with Daniel Levin. And it, there is a absolute uh, chronological flow to how all of those sequences go together. And so I kind of rendered it in a, if you will, scenes. Daniel's painting scenes. And in like act one of this scene, this happens and that happens and this happens and that happens. And then it kind of moves to a different scene. And then this happens and that happens and that. And when you do that, there's absolutely a chronological flow. And that's what convinced me. I went into the, I'm not, I'm not exhaustive with, with the research, but just me studying and doing that is what convinced me that, you know, this, this has to be future. It just, it could have been fulfilled in the past, but it works. This whole thing just works. It actually flows like a perfect story and a picture of what's going to take place. But again, we don't know until that, until it happens, but that's just my take on it. But yeah, you're, you're completely right. Somebody should dig into it and uh do that because it'd be interesting so maybe you're the man maybe you should do that i don't know you know to be totally (laughs) to be totally honest with you like i've been so much in the prophecy world now for years and i continue to to do it and i i will continue to do it i don't i don't plan on not teaching on prophecy but i'm thinking of going more in the route of like church history Cause I feel that there's so much there that I still want to learn about and study. And like, sometimes I'd rather like read about, yeah, the incarnation and justification and the reformation and all these different church movements throughout history, than go into like an academic setting and do like hardcore biblical studies with all these German scholars who are trying to rip the Bible apart and, So yeah, from a professional standpoint, I'm not sure I want to like go quite that deep into the book of Daniel, but it would be, it'd be very intriguing and interesting. And I I haven't fully like decided yet, but sometimes I'm like, yeah, I don't know if, I don't know if that's for me at that, at that kind of level, you know, Um, but we'll see what happens. Awesome. Well, I guess um, any final thoughts before we wrap this up? Is there anything that you'd want to discuss that we haven't touched on? No, uh, I feel like we're just scratching the surface here, man. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like oh, we're just let's keep started. going. Let's keep no, going. I mean, it's it's whatever. I I know you got uh, you got to be attuned to people's attention spans in the 21st century too. I don't have to. Most people no. probably don't listen to the whole episode anyway. It's but but if they can get bits and pieces, that's really the important part. And there's of course there's some people I know specifically, especially in our own congregation, that they'll listen to every last word and, and love it. Um, but the uh, no, I mean I I understand these topics and subjects are so deep, and you can literally spend you know, years discussing 
uh, the ramifications. And I think that's somewhat what the millennium is all about, where we can sit back in the culmination of the age and just take a breather. I, I really think that that's probably what's up is we just take a kind of a divine breather and enjoy what God had in mind for this world before we enter an entirely new phase of life that we don't have a lot of information about. Mm-hmm. And I, and I don't know at that point what God is planning on doing or what he has in mind or that, that he has it planned. I think um, I was just thinking about it the other day. It's like, you know, we think in terms of our lifespan, which, you know, who knows, 70, 80, 90 years, but, but, you know, that's really, it's really not really how to think about it. You think about it. It's like the first century of our eternal existence, we were kind of relegated on this unfortunate earth and world and cursed world. But in that time that we, we, God made an opportunity for us and, and just think from the mindset of now you're 500 or 600 years old, looking back, how that idea, how that's going to change our perspective. When we look back in this time, when we didn't have the clarity, we didn't see everything. We didn't know everything, but at the end, it's all going to work out. It's all going to make perfect sense. And we can contemplate. And I think that's, Again, coming back to millennium, that's really the purpose of it, is that we can take that time and contemplate and rejoice in what God did to bring us, to bring humanity from the desperate situation that it was in. I mean, if you think about what uh, Satan did in tricking the human race and tricking Adam, and it could have destroyed the entire human race, mm-hmm. yet God in his wisdom knew how to redeem so, and we're part of that story. So I, I think, you know, spending time with Jesus for a thousand years, kind of in the honeymoon phase, uh, is going to be unbelievable. Unbelievable. Mm-hmm. I can't wait to sit down and just hear some stories. Mm-hmm. <laughs> of course, we might do yeah. that in paradise until then, but I'm still thinking that some of that's going to be saved when we get back. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, that's one thing too, is how tangible that experience is going to be, I think, with studying and eating and feasting and just living on a renewed earth is, that's really what it's, what it's all about. But yeah, and that's one of the reasons I think prophecy really does matter and why I devote so much time to it is because I think we're supposed, as much as we're supposed to hash out the details we really are supposed to be grounded in the blessed hope of the kingdom. Like that's supposed to be the engine that's sort of like driving everything um, for the community of faith, you know? And so that's where I really think prophecy enters in, but then, yeah, like we're talking about, there's so many details of things that are laid out. Like it seemed to me that God wanted to glorify himself by predicting the future, you know, just by saying like, look, I can, I'm laying this out ahead of time and some of it's very specific. And that's why I am a futurist because I think if you don't have a future, you know, futurist just mean interpret, meaning interpreting these prophecies as though they have a future fulfillment. If you're not a futurist, you're kind of taking that away from God. If that's even possible, like you're taking away from God, his desire to glorify himself by specifically predicting future end time events. And yeah, so I think it's really important in that regard, because I think a lot of people are going to get 
saved in the future. A lot of people are going to come to faith because there's going to be prophecies being fulfilled. And it's going to be like Christians and Messianic Jews are going to be able to say, hey, like, look, this is in the Bible. Look at the 70th week. It's there. It's right there. It's happening. And um, that's why I think it's really important for us to be equipped in interpreting prophecy. And that's a big kind of part of what I'm trying to do with my ministry. Yeah. Yeah. Tell us about that. Yeah. So I started this ministry called Voice of Messiah, which is how I basically publish my resources. Uh, We're actually in the process of hopefully changing our name, but I won't say what the name is going to be just yet until it's officially approved by the powers that be, you know? Um, So yeah, a big part of what we do is we publish the resources, teach on Bible prophecy. I'm also pretty active on Twitter. People can find me if they're on Twitter at Travis M. Snow. I'm active following you, but that's yeah. (laughs) So yeah. So a big, I mean, right now my ministry, it's basically like we're trying to produce resources that can help the church be more equipped in the study of prophecy. Um, So I'll be publishing different things in the future. And then I also do some teaching. Like when people asked me to speak just this last weekend, a friend of mine who has a Messianic congregation asked me to speak. So I'll do that. But yeah, that's kind of the, the gist of what I'm doing. I have another job as well. So I'm not doing all of this full time yet, but I hope to at some point and, um, yeah, trying to trying to chart the course there, but that's awesome. the gist of it. <laughs> awesome. Web address is, I believe it's back here. Is it voiceofmessiah.com or is it .org? Yeah, it's .com, voiceofmessiah.com. Perfect. And of course, you can buy your books on Amazon or I believe you have them available on your website as well. Yeah, the links are there right now, mainly Amazon. Unless people wanted to buy in bulk, I could work with like a local printer, but most of what I do is through Amazon. Sure. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Travis. I appreciate it. I appreciate the time and I appreciate the energy. I know you've spent, you have spent hours and uh, I wrote a book, not nearly this fat. And I understand a little bit of the kind of work that goes into doing something like this. So Lord bless you for it. And uh, thank you so much. Cause I think it's a tremendous resource for us, especially in the last days. Uh, to have current um, thought on it. I, I know ancient thought is, is wonderful and great, but you know something applicable to where, what we're facing right now, what does it look like? So uh, thank you so much for that and blessings to you and your wife for putting up with all the hours where you've been busy. <laughs> she, yeah, she's used to that at this point. Yeah, but well, I appreciate she, it. She just rolls her eyes. She's like, another project? Like, really? <laughs> Yeah, my wife didn't even know I was working on a second book until I was like halfway done with that. Ooh. I don't know. I don't know how that happened, but yeah, nice. she was like, You're you're working on another book. I was like, Yeah, it's halfway done. Awesome. But uh yeah, I appreciate you, man. I appreciate the conversation and what you're doing here as well. So thank you for the opportunity. Awesome. Absolutely. <laughs>